Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I'm very pleased to have somebody on the show whom I've been a long time. Charlie Oppler is the 2020 president-elect of the National Association of Realtors. He's also the CEO of Prominent Properties, uh, Sotheby's International Realty. Hi, Michael. Glad to be with you today. Uh, thank you. Charlie, the listeners are really very global. They're always interested in different markets and what the market conditions are. Can you tell us a little bit about your views on the New Jersey market first before we jump into our questions? Well, New Jersey's positioned kind of as a global center, uh, almost like New York City, Michael. Um, when you think about northern New Jersey and central New Jersey, picture Newark Airport uh, up to the George Washington Bridge and north of that. So we are just minutes away from New York City. Uh, our company specifically speaks 40 languages, which really mirrors a global market here as well. In northern New Jersey and central New Jersey, what we have is what most of the country has right now is an inventory shortage. Uh, before this pandemic crisis hit, we had an inventory shortage. When we get back to work, and nobody knows when that is, we will still have an inventory shortage. But what we will have is a new demand, I believe, uh, of people that may want to get into the suburbs and northern New Jersey is positioned real well to, to handle that overflow from New York City because of our medical facilities, before, because of our commuting to New York City, uh, and just the global feel of the metropolitan area. So uh, New Jersey was off to a great start this year. Prices were up. Units were up and the activity was very, very brisk. You know, it's really interesting. You know that I, that I uh, sit on the uh, of Aria and I was speaking to some of the folks in China and they were saying that during the last pandemic with SARS, they actually saw people were wanting to move into larger spaces, wanting to move into the suburbs, not wanting to be in the city. Absolutely, and I think what you'll also see, Michael, is more of the multi-generational housing. Yeah. Uh, bigger homes lead to more family. Uh, I think you're gonna have really a, uh, an interesting approach to housing for everybody that wanted to downsize. Yep. They're gonna think twice about that because they wanna be prepared to handle family. And yet, because of the tax deductions and the SALT, uh, state and local tax deduction being taken away in 18, there's still that kind of uh, juxtaposition, if you will, of having to make that decision. But I think everybody does agree that uh, because of this pandemic, being in an area that has so many high-rise buildings where you're susceptible to just getting um, infected because of the number of people in a building will lead back to the suburbs. And I do believe... Um, That'll be the whole metropolitan area. But again, I think New Jersey is probably the most positioned to, to, to gain an advantage, if you will, uh, from the outflow of New York City. And with 40 languages, you're ready to do that. We're waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me, Charlie, how did it all begin? How did you do this industry, this crazy industry of ours? You know, I think about that often. <laughs> I graduated college in 1980. Uh, had the pleasure of working for the March of Dimes for nine months and recruited the two top independent brokers 
real estate brokers by the name of Dick Schlott, you know, uh, an icon in the industry, and Joe Murphy, sure. who was one of the original Better Homes and Gardens franchisees, to co-chair a charity event. And they were just two incredibly uh, giving people. Well, we ran an event in New Jersey that had only been, been run in Detroit once before, and we raised about $50,000 when people told me we would be lucky if we could raise $5,000. <laughs> and at the end of the event, both Joe Murphy and Dick Schlott said, well, you should come work for me. You're going to make easily double what you're making. The only problem is nobody told me it was a commission business. <laughs> so when I looked for my first check about two weeks in, I realized that wasn't going to happen. I better really end up working. Um, and I affiliated with Joe Murphy first because he said to me, if you don't make $25,000, i will write your check for the difference. I made 26000 when my salary with the March of Dines was 12000 Wow. And uh, two years later, in 1984, I went to work for Schlott Realtors as a manager, one of the youngest managers in his company at 26 years old. And, um, you know, since that point, I've had the good fortune of, of working for some great people. And then in 1992, I went out on my own with a, a partner. And 28 years later, we're still partners. We started with one office and 10 agents, and today we have 15 offices and over 700 agents. So you're a partner for 28 years. That's crazy. It is. Um, she's, she's a wonderful uh, person. Her family was a big New York City real estate family by the name of Calico. Uh, her father was a contemporary of Donald Trump's father. Wow. Um, and some other great New York City families. And... Uh, uh, our agreement in 1992 was I'd run the company. Uh, certainly as a partner, we made decisions together, but uh, ultimately she gave me that freedom, if you will, because of my experience. Sure. And, uh, you know, as they say, the rest is history and we've had a pretty good run and uh, we're still enjoying the same relationship. 28 years in the industry and have the same partner, that's, that's unheard of to really know that that really existed. And to think that you have that longevity with not only the longevity in the business, but with the same partner, that to me is just unbelievable. Well, I think one of the things you learn in this business is your reputation is, is built over a long period of time. And it's also built on trust. So for 17 years, we were an independent and then we um, uh, became part of the Sotheby's International Realty family in 2000, uh, January of 2009, when we purchased prominent properties, uh, Sotheby's International Realty, which had three offices at the time, and we merged it with our independent company. And we've uh, taken advantage of all the tools. Uh, I think we've given as much as we've gotten back, and it's a relationship that, again, you build on, on, on longevity. You know, so one thing in this business is it doesn't happen overnight, as you know, with so many of the great companies around the world, you just have to work at this business. And, and we've done that. And uh, we continue to look at opportunities to make our company better and stronger. You know, you mentioned uh, an incredible company, uh, over $2 billion in sales, over 600 agents. It must be an amazing culture built there. So tell me how that happened. How do you build that culture? How do you, how do you sort of create that? You know, this may sound cliche-ish, but you build it, you know, great people. 
It's right. one great person at a time. And um, uh, we've, we've been fortunate to move into some great marketplaces. Um, Jersey City, Hoboken, Montclair, Summit, Short Hills, Alpine, and so Tenafly, so many great marketplaces um, along the Gold Coast of Northern New Jersey. And sometimes longevity means you're a dinosaur. I've tried to stay as, as up to uh, speed, if you will, on everything that would be attractive to an agent that's you know, just out of college and, and new in the business as much as somebody that may be in the business 30 years. Uh, I'm also very fortunate, besides my partner, I've got my son who's 33 years old working with us in a management position after being in sales. So we cover both the millennials and the more experienced agents, if you will. You know, Charlie, I've known you a long time. And you know, yeah. you're, a very, you're a very special man. You are that father figure, not only for your own son, but for many people. And, you know, you have that sense of really wanting to see people succeed. You are the uh, president-elect of NAR, and you represent over what is over a million realtors in the United States. You're close to a million four these days, Michael. Wow. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's a lot. So here's where I'm thinking. You've been, you have this business for 28 years. You're incredibly successful. You've got over 600 agents, two years in sales. Why get into this? You know, you really do care. You care about the industry and you care about people succeeding. But tell me, why did you go? Well, you know, I've been asked that question a, a lot of times. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think it's about, I think it's about when somebody asks you to do something. And, and this will sound real Pollyanna to a degree, but back in the 1980s, for those of you that were not even born yet, um, <laughs> it, it was a different business. You know, there was no internet. Yeah. It was relationships. And I still believe relationships are, are as important today as they were 30 plus years ago when I was first really getting into the business. But what happened is somebody asked me to serve on a board of directors at a local board. And that was in the mid 80s, 85, 86, 87. And I served on a committee and, you know, I made my investment in RPAC because of that, that being such an important feature of what we do on a national level, but a local level. Sure. Ne next thing I know, I'm the president of that board in 1996, <laughs> which means I started serving on the leadership team in 93. Right. Well, you know, it was a great experience. And I said, this is great. You know, I've got my own business. I've done this and I've done that. And then somebody asked me to serve as a, a, a division officer on the state level. And I said, yeah, I can do that. I can oversee four or five committees. And I think that was in 1997. Well, in 2004, I was the state of New Jersey president because somebody asked me to get involved. <laughs> and then, um, you know, a, a, as it ended up being in the 90s, I went to some national conventions because I represented the Eastern Bergen County Board of Realtors back uh, then, which is now the Greater Bergen County Board of Realtors, because there's been consolidation and growth. And to make a long story short, I served as national committee, uh, a national liaison, a national real regional vice president, uh, a national vice president in 2015. And again, somebody asked me to be uh, think about 
serving on a bigger level. And uh, in 2021, I'll be the president of the National Association of Realtors, which in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd do. And you know what? I don't look at this as giving back. I look at it as, you know what? We can all do more. Um, it's your leadership that is that attitude and your leadership that really does lead our industry, especially when you start thinking about what's happening with Corona. You have a very unique viewpoint of what would be the, the domestic U.S. real estate market. So I want to ask you, what are the three things that you see as commonalities, the, the three main things you see about real estate in the United States? You know, we, we during this, this crisis, um, we've been fortunate enough to have some company meetings with speakers from around the country. Um, I've made some great friends through, through this volunteer effort, if you will, for the last 20 years. And I, I've spoken to friends all over the country. And, and I think the one thing that jumps out and the other two not as much, but the first one is all real estate is local. You build relationships locally. You make your mark as somebody in the community locally. You become the fabric of your community, whether it's with your family, um, whether you volunteer to coach a Little League team, to be involved in a, uh, a cultural event, whether it's a religious organization. But we all focus on being part of the community and it's because all real estate's local so no matter where i've had the opportunity to go and where i've had the opportunity to meet some great people across the country your success in my opinion is dependent upon how much you become ingrained in the community that you live in because if you're not the trusted advisor in your community and you're not that community advocate then you know, are you just another real estate agent that's, that's been fortunate enough to make some money because you've had some transactions or did you become the go-to person in your community? And right. whether that's a, a community of a thousand people, 10,000 people, 50,000 people or larger, there's always that person. There's always that company that somebody says, boy, they're pretty special. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. And that's what I like to look at. Number two, what I, I've learned is the people that work the hardest in most cases are the luckiest. And I, I say that because everybody says, well, you got lucky. No, you didn't. You worked hard. Sure. And, and you made your mark in the community and you've made your success because you've worked hard. This business is a full-time business. This business across the country, people working hard to make a difference and to know their product. And I would say the third thing, um, that there's passion. No matter where I go across the country, I see passion in people to make a difference. And whether it's in the South, the West, uh, Midwest, it doesn't matter. I've had an opportunity to speak at a board that's got um, 60 or 70 members, and I've spoken to boards that have 50,000 members and 30,000 members, and I find the same passion at all levels. And uh, so I think if you're part of the, com the, the community, you work hard, and you're passionate about this business, those commonalities can play anywhere in the market, any place in the country, um, any place in the world.
I was going to say that. I think that these are sage for anyone listening around the world. It really is that real estate is that. There's no magic formula, isn't it? It's really local. I think those are really beautiful, perfect trifecta for what it is. And, you know, we, we've, we've alluded to how the industry might be changing pandemic. But tell me what, I'm sure that you've had infinite, infinite calls on this. How do you see the industry changing post-corona? Well, about two weeks ago, we had a budget review meeting for the National Association of Realtors, which would have been a two and a half day event in Chicago. Yep. And we would have had probably in the neighborhood of 150 people at that meeting. About 70 volunteers um, from all over the country to review the budget. And then we would have had different staff from the National Association of Realtors in so many different areas come to present to us. Well, we did it a little differently because right. we couldn't be in Chicago. <laughs> sure, exactly. So I was fortunate enough to chair the meeting and looking at my Zoom screen, I have 150 people. Wow. But we made sure that everybody had the budget five days in front of, in front of the, the meeting so that they could read it. And we took the approach that, well, we just did this in 2020 because we do it every year. Let's only address the issues in the budget that are more than five or 10% increases or decreases. And let's understand what changed. Because if it's an operational item, you may not have to do a lot of analysis about hosting an event. Mm -hmm. You might not have to do anything about code of ethics training. But if we're going to look at a, a, a variable that's significant, let's know what it is so that we can approve it, ask questions, or uh, disapprove, you know, make a recommendation to our finance committee that we didn't think this was a good need. Sure. Well, we did it in about four and a half hours one morning. I think we started at 10 o'clock Eastern which was seven o'clock West Coast, and we had a number of people from the West Coast, and we were done by 2.30, quarter to three. So we accomplished what would have taken two and a half days in five hours. So that of just remote deliverables is what, I mean, you know, how many Zoom calls have we been on now in a daily basis? Yep, I, I think you, you talk about efficiencies in process. Yes. I think what you learn is there are a lot of things you can do differently that make it better for the end user. And when you can see their face, you can still get that immediate reaction if you say something that's, you know, not acceptable. Right, right. If you say something that they didn't expect to hear, you can still get the emotion of the moment. And as long as you can do that, you can be more efficient. You know, it's funny. Some offices have meetings, you know, every two weeks. And they'll get 25, 30, 35 agents come to a meeting, do a Zoom call, and you get 45 or 50 of the agents from that office to come. You know why? Because they can block it out, and they don't have to drive to an office. They don't have to worry about parking their car. Yep. Whatever might be one of those obstacles is taken off the ledger. And I'll, and I'll give you one last thing that I think Zoom calls have done and just the different way of communicating. How many agents will run to show a property without really knowing about a customer. We've had some of our agents say, you know, they've had inquiries on listings. I've said to the buyer, 
who I've never met, why don't we set up a Zoom call so we can have a conversation? I can get a, a feel for what your needs are. If it's you, your wife, your partner, whoever the buyer is, let's get to meet each other. And guess what? Sometimes when a buyer doesn't want to do that, you have that funny feeling, well, but I was going to go and meet them in a vacant house. Right, right, yeah, right. So, so safety comes into play. So I think there's a lot more things um, in terms of efficiency that we hadn't looked at before that I think we can look at differently. And I know from a National Association of Realtors level, I'm excited about not traveling as much in 21 because I can do more meetings and more calls here while I'm sitting in my office um, and be more efficient and more effective, I think, uh, for all members than to be on the road sitting at airports uh, sometimes. So it's, uh, it's an exciting opportunity to, to see this business in a different light. And when you even sort of think about our conferences going virtually now as well, you know, uh, our Global Luxury Summit, which we're actually going to do virtually now. And yep. so it's, uh, it's a great thing that you can still communicate. So I think that that's interesting is the fact that we are turning our industry more interactive and more efficient by being more virtual. So I think that that's a real observation on your end. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's certain things that you know you can do this way. Yep. But there's also something that is so beneficial when you're face to face with somebody. I think the one thing that we're going to learn is those face to face meetings can be a lot quicker, and we can do different meetings that overlap. Yes. On a national level, so you're not traveling as much uh, as you might have in the past. So I think we're going to look to do things differently, and yet. Um, you know, part, part of our success on a national level is being able to have those relationships with our um, uh, representatives on the congressional basis, both in the uh, House and in the Senate. Uh, and those require some face-to-face -face meetings when we're in D.C. at the mid-year. So we're going to miss that opportunity. And we, we, you know, we were fortunate enough in the CARES bill you know, stimulus package number three. Yes. To protect the independent contractor, uh, which is a huge, significant win. Absolutely. Because we're we're not employees. Absolutely. I can't mandate what our seven hundred agents do on a day to day basis, but with our our chief lobbyist Shannon McGann and our advocacy team with uh, Bill Malkasian and Joe Ventrone, we were able to make. And I say make because I think we made them understand in Washington that everybody would be hurting, not just employees. And we got calls from other industries that have independent contractors, um, like florists, like uh, hair, hairdressers and, and beauticians and, right. uh, and everybody else that was an independent contractor say, boy, you helped us. How did you yes. do it? So. When, when, when you go out into a community, and we talk about community base, right, we can, we can sing the song that we helped not just the real estate industry, but we helped independent contractors at every level because of what we do as an association and what we do as day-to-day -day members. You know, we, we, we look at this and say, you know what? What's fair for one is fair for everybody. Absolutely. And the taxes the same way, don't we? Absolutely. So let's, let's and it's, see what we can do. 
Instead of, you know, you start thinking about how you help other industries by protecting your own. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but Charlie, I want to ask you, I want to just um, sort of switch topics a little bit. Sure. And, you know, you've had uh, 40 years of wonderful experience in this industry. What's the greatest lesson you've ever learned? Wow. Yeah. The greatest lesson I've ever learned. Yeah, in your career. You know, I've, le I've learned a couple of great lessons. Um, but, but I would guess one of the lessons that I've learned that I, I always think about is um, don't take anything for granted. Um, you know, I, I had some humble beginnings. And, and yet I wouldn't trade them for anything. You know, I grew up with a mother and a father, a brother and a sister um, in a 500 square foot, two bedroom apartment. Yeah. And yet people say to me, well, you know, how'd you do that? I didn't know anything better. I had a roof over my head. My parents both worked. We had meals at night and I got an opportunity to play sports in high school and uh, made a lot of friends. And, um, you know, when I have a bad day, I'll drive back to my own hometown and say, boy, you know what? You've got it a lot better than a lot of people. And, and, I, and I think I look back and say, being able to appreciate what you have and then be able to give back to others less fortunate is, is, is something I learned at a real early age because of, of the opportunities that were, were given to me, you know, later in life. So from a, um, a lesson, it's, it's, it's due for others. You know, um, a lot of times I look at each day and there's three things that, that uh, and, a, and a good friend of mine and I have had this conversation and he said it and I, and we're, we just sat and talked. I said, well, I'm going to steal it because it's the way I've lived forever. Every day I try to do something difficult, mm. try to do something fun, and try to do something for somebody else. I love that. And, and we've had through our managers meetings and, and Zoom calls, uh, our message to all of our agents in our town hall meetings are make sure you take care of your family first, make sure everybody's safe and sound, and then we just call it the plus one, and then go check on one other person. Because if we have 700 people checking on 700 other people, then we've, you know, um, done something positive. And I'll give yeah. you one real quick example. One of our agents lives in Jersey City. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of homes there that are attached, you know, row houses. Sure. Some beautiful homes, some brownstones and everything. Well, uh, she and her daughter live there. And after that meeting, she went and knocked on the door next door to her. She had seen the owner of that property a few times, but never much of a conversation. And uh, nobody answered the door, so she left a note with her phone number. Going to the grocery store tomorrow, do you need anything? Wow. The woman called her back and said, I don't know why you did this, but thank you. I don't drive, and I'm running out of things. Would you be kind enough to pick this up for me? And she did that called the woman and said, they're on your front porch. And if there's anything else you need from me, let me know. Didn't take anything. Uh, didn't want to get paid for it. She just was doing what was right in the community. Um, so when I think about doing something hard, doing something fun and doing something for others, um, 
you know, uh, the way people can help one another and the humanitarian things that are going on right now for our uh, first responders and our healthcare industry. Um, and we've done a bunch in our own company of making meals and dropping off meals. And we have so many of our agents doing things in their own respective communities. It just, I think it's, it's the way you do things as a company and as you do things as individuals that you can make a difference. It's the most beautiful statement of really coming in from a place of humility and a place of service. And not only for our community, but if you actually look at those that are most successful, I see that as the commonality, including you, Charlie. This is so beautiful to really just hear that as your, as your lesson. It's, uh, uh, it says a lot about who you are, how you really just interact with others, and I've seen it for many, many years. Um, so thank you for that. That was really beautiful. Well, I, I appreciate that, but you, you know what? I think when you see other people do things, yeah. you want to be part of that, and that's contagious. And I always think of, of, of that. And there's, there's so many other people that, you know, every year at the National Association meetings and, and even at all the other industry type meetings, there's well we, we call them good neighbor awards. But there are so many associations that have their own recognition levels, if you will, of other in, in what, you know, in whatever the organization is. Our good neighbor awards, and we honor five a year and then there's probably hundreds of, of applications, you sit in awe of what certain people do in a community. Even though you've done so much, you sit there and say, wow, I, I could do so much more. And yet, you know, for whatever the reasons, we, we don't get that opportunity to do more than, than we could at that moment in time. But I am amazed at, at, at the, the level of um, community outreach that the realtors have around the, the world. Um, but certainly in the, the United States, the million four hundred thousand members in our territories um, of, of things that people do do. And, you know, when you go back to, to the hurricanes in, in Puerto Rico recently, sure, the National Association helped organize food drives here so that we could ship them there with part of the Red Cross. So there's just so many things. And, and I think that that's the heart of a realtor is something special. You know, when you go back to saying that your first number one is really about the community and it really is, it shows. Um, but Charlie, I want to ask you about uh, mentorship. Um, you know, being involved with so long, not just in the real estate industry, but with the National Association of Realtors and caring about others. I, I think in terms of mentorship, Michael, um, one of the things I've learned over the years, because I started so young in the business and was mentored by so many good people, I look at the, I, I almost look at it as my responsibility, like so many others, to, to, to work with the younger realtors, both as a, a, a volunteer leader and servant leadership, if you will, as well as from their professional level. And where mentorship is, is really um, an opportunity to help somebody get to a level that they want to be at. Mm. And when I think about that, 
you can't mentor somebody that doesn't want to make that commitment that you've made. But there are so many great leaders in this country. And I, uh, the National Association started something, I guess it's about 12 years ago, and there's a lot of different organizations in real estate. But the Young Professionals Network started about 2008 or so. And I think all of us recognized that there were so many great young realtors getting into the business as a full-time business much sooner than a lot of us did from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where it became a second career for so many. It was becoming a first career for so many. And I had a chance to meet so many of those young professionals, and the, the millennials wanted to learn. Yes. And you could have, you could have a um, dinner to go to from 6 to 8.30, and you get back to the lobby, and there's 8, 10, 15 people immersed in a conversation about what they can do to this industry. And if that doesn't, you know, get you going, I don't know what will. So I'm real excited in, in 2021 that a lot of those people serving on my leadership team, because it's not my team, it's really our team, are so many that came from the Young Professionals Network. Because I think it's my responsibility along with so many of the other leaders to bring that next generation into a leadership capacity so that the millennials can, can help the Gen Xers and Gen Zs and, um, you know, so many younger people getting into the business. Um, so I just look at it as a, another responsibility that you inherit because it's you, you who benefited from somebody else's mentorship. Sure. And, and you pass that down. And, you know, somebody asked me one day, you know, who are your role models? And they knew I was a big sports person, so I think they expected it to be a, uh, a sports figure. And, you know, um, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as, well, I, yeah, I would love to have been a professional athlete, but my mentors were my parents. That's where you learn the rights and the wrongs of things to do. Um, and, you know, when, when you walk off of a baseball diamond for the last time, which I haven't yet because I still play softball, um, <laughs> and I'm the oldest person in the league, but that's another discussion, um, you, you learn how to respect those around you. Yes. And two years ago, you know, I was running for the position of first vice president for the National Association of Realtors. And we were away uh, for what we call President's Circle in the Bahamas for a meeting um, of people that uh, invest in our PAC at a much greater level. And I flew out on a Thursday morning for the whole day of Thursday's meetings. And uh, Friday at noon, I had scheduled a flight because my son was playing in the New Jersey high school basketball state tournament. And in New Jersey, once you reach the states, it's winner moves on, loser goes home. Sure. Well, that Friday, for those who remember two years ago in March, was a nor'easter of epic proportions where they canceled 5,000 flights. Oh, no. I got the last flight out of Nassau, 
landed at Newark Airport at 5 o'clock in an absolute blizzard. Wind, rain, snow, you name it. And the flight almost felt like it landed sideways. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> then I get in my car and drive from Newark Airport to, to where I live in Franklin Lakes, Bergen County. Yes. On the ground in Newark was ice maybe two inches. By the time I drove 35 miles, it was eight to 10 inches of snow. Oh, my God. And all I could picture is they were going to cancel the game. But once you cancel a game, it really takes away the every other night, win or move on. Sure. Well, this was the state semifinal on a Friday night. And if they won, they would play Tuesday night. Well, Jason had probably one of the best games he's ever played. I was sitting in my usual spot. Um, I walked into the gym at 5 to 7 for a 7 o'clock game. Right. And I was on a flight at 6.30 the next morning. Oh, my gosh. Back to the Bahamas for the rest of the event that finished on Sunday morning. And I'd fly home Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. Wow. Um, and people said to me, why do you do it? I said, for a couple reasons. You set the example for the next generation. If for one second my family would have thought real estate was more important than my family, then I would not have been the person that I like to think that I am. <laughs> so so when, when seven, eight, nine hundred realtors found out what I did, because I didn't tell many people, I just didn't want them to worry about me not showing up at a couple meetings. Right. What I did, they said, you're crazy. And yet I looked at it as everybody else I would think would do the same thing if it was their child. Mm. Now, you would hope that's the case. And yet it's probably not. But you do for your family first. It's not worth doing. And if, you, if during this pandemic crisis, if anybody's learned anything, and I think a lot of the younger realtors have learned the value of family. Yes. One of my top agents who will do 35, 40, 50 million this year has a two and a half year old and a six month old. And I check in with my agents pretty frequently. And yes. He texted me the other night. He said, you know what? I know what you mean now. Oh God. Yeah. Cause he said, it's going to be tougher to go back to work the same way. Now I know this, this young kid will because he's so driven. Uh, and he's probably one of the best photographers this industry will ever see. But he goes out of his way now to make sure that he spends that extra hour or two hours at home when this is all over. I could bet my last dollar on that. And I think that's what, that's what mentoring is when you can impart some of the things that are important to you and somebody sees that you've had a pretty good career at doing things and that you can balance your family, your volunteer commitment, and your business, well, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And that's, I hope to, to, to be mentoring more and more that way. Charlie, I learned so much from you, even now, and it's, uh, it really is heartwarming. And, you know, what you're, what you're saying, you would wish that every dad would do that, but, you know, you, we both know the answer. And as you do this mentorship, and, you know, it brings me to my next question. You and, and, and your wife, Jerry, are also incredibly philanthropic. 
you're also sit on uh, on um, you're also uh, involved with the Englewood Hospital and Medical Center. Tell me a little bit about the philanthropic uh, work that your family does. I, I think it just goes back to community. It does. Uh, you know, I as I said, I still play softball. Um, yeah. And you talk about full circle. Well, one of the guys I play with lost a seven-year-old to brain tumors um, mm. 13 years ago. Oh. And Matt Larson would have been a classmate of my son Jason's. Yeah. So uh, I got to know the Larson family pretty well. And I'll never forget playing softball. Another friend of mine and a bunch of us after a game, uh, this guy Steve just got us all around. He said, say an extra prayer tonight for Matty. And a lot of us didn't know who Matt was at the time. He was two years old at that time. Wow. They told him he could never defeat this because it was so, so severe, the brain tumors. Well, he lasted another five years, and, and we all know how cruel cancer can be and, and mm. brain tumors and everything. They thought he was just about out of the woods when it came back with a vengeance, and he passed at seven years old. Um, and every day I look at my 20-year-old son and know that Matt would be 20 years old. Um, so I asked way back when, how do I get involved? How do I serve on the board? Because I'm lucky enough that I have four healthy children. And uh, Greg and his wife, Kelly, have had four. They now have three. Um, and, and these are two of the most giving people. Well, the name came from Iron Matt because... All Matt wanted to do was see his neighbor run in the Ironman triathlon. And he died about two weeks before the event when he was planning to go to Hawaii to watch this neighbor run. And all expenses paid in the whole, whole bit. Well, when Matty passed, uh, his father worked for Goldman Sachs at the time. And they gave a very substantial contribution for him to start a, a charitable organization to help families and to help for research for Iron Matt. And today we raise in the neighborhood of, I think we're in the neighborhood of about a million and a half to $2 million a year. Wow. And that's used for research grants and for families around the country to take their children who have been affected with brain tumors and, and help them pay their mortgage or living expenses. Because once you're in the hospital with your child, there is nothing else that you think about. Um, uh, I'm just proud to be part of this organization and every day I just think about he'd be the same age as Jason they would have played sports together they would have gone to social events together and two years ago sitting in the bleachers watching my son graduate um, there was Greg Larson with his camera taking pictures of the event because the next door neighbor whose mother was going to run in the um, triathlon was also graduating. You know, our families have been friends for a long time. Their 25-year-old son now is one of our top agents on a top team. Um, and that all started because the father called me up and said, you know, can Nick be an intern for you for this summer? I know he's a screw-up. I know he's a pain in the neck. But you know what? He's a smart kid. and Maybe you can get through to him that I can't. Um, he said, you don't have to pay him. You don't have to do this. Just give him a chance to see what he can do. 
Uh, and of course, we pay them because we hire four interns a year. And um, seven years later, he's a top agent, good agent, 25 years old, 24 years old, and just another person that culturally gets it. So right now, he and his, his family are helping organize food drives for people that are less fortunate because not everybody can put a meal on the table right now because they don't have a job. So his family, the Larson family, helps organize that, and so many of us just follow their lead because, you know, um, if you can't give back and you're not part of the community and, and realize that it's not about you, then, then I don't know why you're here. Charlie, you are a dad to a lot more than the four that you have. You are an amazing human being. I've got one final question. I answered a lot of it throughout this interview, but what's the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Wow. Um, I, I don't think there's any legacy. I, I, I would just like to think that if you set an example for other people and enough people see what you do for others, that if you can inspire some other people to, to do better, um, then I think, I think you've made a difference. Uh, I think we all want to be respected at what we've done. Um, on, on a national level, I look at how fortunate I am to serve, but it's not about me. You know, President Vince Malta this year and, and myself as president-elect, right now we think we're fortunate to be able to try to lead this organization because it's about community and member engagement right now. Everybody says, oh yeah, you get to go on this trip and that trip. We're not going anywhere. You know, everybody looks at this and says, when you're a volunteer leader, oh, you get to go to this meeting and that meeting. For six months this year, we won't travel. And I'm more energized now than I've ever been because I think you can make more of a difference now. Um, and, and, and so, I, I think the biggest thing that anybody can do uh, when you think about a legacy is did you leave the world in a better place? Did you leave your company and all the people that work for you in a better place? Um, did you help somebody today? You know, and, and somebody has said to me once, you've had probably eight or ten people leave your company to open up their own businesses. I said, it's probably more than that. <laughs> you know what? what they'll tell you is they still call me to help them and and I tell them that's my job my yeah. job is to make somebody have that comfort to know that they're not doing this alone because if there's more good realtors and more good people out there then guess what we're a better industry and we're a better world for people to live and work in um, and I've had that chance for a lot of my career both playing sports and being a parent to four great kids and now I have two grandchildren and, and that's another part of my why. And I think when you know your why is about others and your why is about your family, you've had a pretty good day. Um, you know, I, I'm, I just look at it as every day I wake up, can I make a little bit of a difference somewhere um, and, and knock on wood. I, I think I've had that chance and I'm going to hope to have that chance for a lot of years because uh, I don't even think about retiring. I think this is an industry that we all love so much that every day you have a chance to do something, it's a great day. 
Charlie, I've known you for so many years and I've had such incredible respect for you. And even in this conversation grew exponentially. You are an amazing human being. I'm so really fortunate and humbled to have you in my life and to know you. And Charlie, thank you for the conversation today. Michael, my pleasure. And, and, and you're, you're a pretty special person as well. We've known each other a long time. We have. And it's just, uh, hope we, we get to do this for the next 20 years and have this conversation in 2040. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for the leadership of NAR in 2021 under your vision and leadership. And you have my commitment for whatever you need, my friend. And I again, appreciate it, Michael. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you all of you for joining. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind. And I invite you to come to our website. It's www.glrem.com. Thank you all very much. <laughs>